0: Action. So we're here in uh, early September 2013, and the topic that's on everybody's minds, not just here but everywhere, is, is Syria. Will the U.S. bomb Syria? Should the U.S. bomb Syria? Why do some people think that the U.S. should? Why do other people think that the U.S. shouldn't? Uh, these are the kinds of questions that occupy us every day. This is a, a big national and global issue. Sometimes it's personal, personal issues, and these are the kinds of questions that social science tries to answer. Now... Uh, what I want to talk about today is the role of neuroscience and specifically brain imaging and social science. So far, neuroimaging has told us something between very little and nothing about these <laughs> kinds of big questions. And so the, what I want to talk about is why is that? What has neuroimaging accomplished in the last 15 years or so? What has it failed to accomplish and why? And what's the hope for the future? And I should say a little bit about my background. I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, and at the moment, I think I'm the only neuroscientist here. But I, I'm not a neuroevangelist, and I didn't really begin my academic career as a neuroscientist. I started out as a philosopher, and I think of myself as as much of a philosopher and a psychologist than as a neuroscientist. I use neuroscientific tools, but I use other tools just as much. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my perspective as someone who's a user but not a, 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 an, an, an evangelist. Uh, so... The, the, the key psychological distinction, I think, but behind what I want to say is the distinction between process and content. And what functional imaging has done very well is connect parts of the brain to different processes and have taught us some specific things about how certain systems process information in a general way. What neuroscience has not done very well, but is starting to, not so much when it, in a way that connects very directly with big social scientific questions, but it's starting to actually get at the content of thinking. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about where, where we are now, how we got here, and how I think important developments in, in, in functional neuroimaging may finally deliver on the promise that a lot of us felt for, for, for neuroimaging when it was really getting rolling. in in, in the late 90s. So when I started doing this in in the late 90s, I was very excited. I I thought, this is opening the black box with everything that that metaphor entails, that that the brain scanner would be something like the the microscope of cognition, that just as biologists ground some lenses and were able to see these little things swimming around in exquisite detail, that we'd finally see the little little critters swimming around in the brain, the little cognitive critters doing their things, and we would understand things on a fundamentally different level from the way we understand things. And I think there have been a lot of triumphs, but we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten our mental microscope. And the question is, why haven't we? What ha- do we have? And, 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 and what's it going to take to, to get there? Will, will we ever get there? So uh, I'm going to start off telling you about uh, a brain imaging, study, brain imaging study that I did recently. And I'm focusing on this experiment Uh, more as a matter of convenience. You can call it narcissism, uh, whatever you like. But it has certain features that I think illustrate where things are, um, but not necessarily where I think things are going. So this is an experiment done with uh, Amitai Shenhav. And the experiment was looking at how people make moral decisions when there are outcomes with varying magnitude and probability. Involved so a specific situation would be like this you have you 're a coast guard uh, uh, sailor you 're on, on a rescue boat going to save one person from drowning, and you know that you could probably save, you can definitely save that person and then you get a radio signal that says in the opposite direction there 's this boat that 's capsized there are five people there. you can save them, but fifty percent chance or it 'd say there are not five people there are ten people there are twenty people there are forty people so you can, we varied in this experiment the number of lives at stake as opposed to the one sure thing. And we varied the probability of saving them with a little twist that I, won't, that, I, that I won't get into. And so the question is, OK, what in the brain is keeping track of that probability parameter, some specific thing? What in the brain is keeping track of the magnitude parameter? And what's putting those things together to give a sensible answer? If you want to give a sensible answer, you have to think about your odds. And you also have to think about how, how, how big uh, the moral reward is and uh, what we found is that when people were making these kinds of hypothetical moral decisions the structures that were doing this kind of work of keeping track and integrating the relevant parameters were the same kinds of structures that you see in humans when they're making self-interested decisions about real rewards like food uh, and and money. Uh, and, And you see homologues of this in other mammals like rats. So in our case, we found that people's sensitivity to the probability parameter was associated with the sensitivity of their anterior insula to the probability parameter. So how they behave. Are, do they care about probability and how much? That's going, You can look at their, their insula and make a guess about that. How much do they care about the size? Well, if you look in the ventral striatum, which is one of the brain regions that we heard about earlier in, 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 in Fiery's talk, uh, that's sensitive to the magnitude. And then the ventromedial prefrontal cortex seems to be sensitive to the interaction. That is, putting these two things together and this parallels very closely as I said what people found when they looked at self-interested economic decision-making so what does this tell us well it says that there's this quite general process of assigning values to outcomes and there are these general parameters that would apply to a lot of different things saving lives versus getting more money for yourself or versus getting getting more food for yourself and we have these domain general systems that we use and when we think about something like saving hypothetical lives we rely on the same kind of circuitry that a person or even a rat might use when they're deciding, well, should I go this way and try to get the really good food uh, or should I go this way and get the lesser, less good food that's, that, 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 that's more, and more certain. Now, from a neuroscientist's perspective... This is not terribly surprising. Well, what else would it be? We've been studying this stuff in rats. Human brains look more or less like big rat brains, with some important caveats. (laughs) Uh, From a moral perspective, as a philosopher and as a psychologist, you might have expected something different. Not long ago, not a lot, but at least some people thought there was a dedicated system for making moral evaluations, a kind of moral organ or moral grammar. And uh, I think these kinds of results and others suggest that that's not tenable. Um, So, okay, we've identified a kind of process that's involved. And it seems to be a quite general process. Does this tell us anything interesting about moral decision-making? Well, maybe a little. So here's an interesting thing about moral decision-making that many people have documented. People seem to value human lives and other moral goods with diminishing returns. So saving one person's life, that's really good. Two, three, that's a little bit better. By the time you get to the hundredth life, it's like, Okay, you know, it's, 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 it's leveling off. Now, why would that be the case? In, in, in a sense, it's, it's very strange. Why is the hundredth life worth any less than the first or second or third life that you can save? Well, if you know that the system that we're using to attach values to these things is a system that evolved in mammals to attach values to things like food, then having this kind of diminishing returns built into the system actually makes a lot of sense in the sense that it's not surprising, not that it makes normative sense. And so perhaps we can explain something like why we just don't care if it's 100 lives that we can save or 1,000 lives that we can save. It all just sounds like a lot. Uh, well, that makes sense. I'm morally full. My ventral striatum <laughs> only goes up to here, right? And so understanding the kind of process can give you some insight into some of the quirks of, of the decision-making process. Now, OK, so that's, that's a hypothesis. There are other explanations for what might, might be going on there. But at least if that hypothesis is right, <clears throat> It tells us something interesting about uh, the, the, the ways we make uh, judgments, including ones that may have, have, have life and death consequences. So that's an experiment. W- what it didn't tell us is how this actual thinking works. So what we're doing is implicating the same kind of reward system, same system for representing the value of outcomes, But somewhere in the brain, you understand that now you're talking about saving hypothetical lives. I'm imagining that I'm working for the Coast Guard and so on and so forth, as opposed to this button will give you a dollar with 50% probability. Somewhere, your brain obviously knows the difference between those two things. This comes back to the difference between process and content. So what brain imaging has been good at, and what it's essentially figured out, is that there are a relatively small number of major cognitive networks in the brain. So you have brain networks that are involved in different kinds of perception, different kinds of motor actuation, in, 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 in storing and retrieving long-term memories, in, as I described, attaching values to different outcomes under conditions of uncertainty, and so on and so forth. Uh, and what we've kind of found when you sort of compare the A to the B, you see a little blob here, and you compare B to C, you see another little blob. If you lower the statistical threshold on all these things, all these little blobs end up being the same mountain ranges. Oh, they're, the, they're the peaks of, of these mountain ranges, which are essentially large-scale networks in the brain. And what we've essentially learned is that pretty much any kind of juicy, large-scale, interesting cognition involving perception, involving imagery, involving memory, involving choices, involving social perception, it's going to involve all this stuff. And you get to a point where you say, okay, it's all involved. Now we can go a step further than that. We didn't just say, well, our, our uh, mammalian reward system is involved we had a bit more of a complicated story. I said, this one's tracking the probability, and this one's tracking the magnitude, and this system seems to be playing this integrative role. And people who do this more seriously than I do have these more detailed computational models. And and you heard from Fiery Cushman some discussion of some of those. We can look at these general systems. We can say, okay, these systems are involved. And we can say something more about the general operating characteristics of the system. And sometimes knowing something about the general operating characteristics of the system will give you some sort of insight into something that you might care about even if you're not a neuroscientist, like why do I not care so much about the hundredth life I could save, right? Okay, but what's what, what's the next step? What what does it take to actually understand our thinking? And this is where I think new, new advances in, in in functional neuroimaging are or at least uh, could be very important. So to sort of flesh out the the, the distinction between process and content, fluid in, in, in two ways. So there's a nice analogy. It's not mine. I wish I knew where it came from, where. Y- you can imagine hanging a giant microphone over a city like Beijing, and and you, what would you learn if you did that? Well, you wouldn't learn Chinese. Mm-hmm. What you'd learn is certain things about patterns over the course of the day, when this part of the city is very busy, this part of the city is not so busy, and when there's a disaster, all of a sudden these things fanned out from this central area and went to all of these different areas around the periphery, and you would learn things about the function of the city, but you wouldn't learn the language of the city, Right. And the question is, what would it take to learn the language, to bring this closer to neuroimaging and psychology? If you want to understand working memory, well, you can give somebody a word to remember and ask them to hold on to it. And you can see structures in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and corresponding regions in the parietal lobe that are going to be keeping those things online. Um, And you might know that you're remembering one word versus five words. You can see the difference of the higher load. more activity, more, more function of the same kind, but doing the kind of neuroimaging that, that dominated for the first 10 years or so, you wouldn't know what word you were remembering. The content is neutral. What you're learning about is the process. Well, with a breakthrough paper in 2001, uh, starting, starting with, 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 with Jim Haxby, people have started to look at content. That is, starting with categories, but then in, 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 in individual concepts, individual intentions. So Haxby's insight was that there's a lot of information that we're losing. The standard way of doing neuroimaging analyses was you have the A over here and the B over there, remembering a two-string word, two string word, word string. Word string two long versus five long, and you look at the activity for those, and you subtract and You say, OK, the extra work for doing five versus two words is, seems to be here in this circuit, and we think that's the, the working memory buffer. What Haxby's insight was, well, look, there's all this information in these patterns, and it may not be about what's overall up or overall down at the level of, you know, brain regions, the size of, your, of, of, of the tip of your pinky or, 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 or bigger. The micro details make a difference. Uh, so you can imagine, for example, training a, a computer to tell the difference between paintings. And if you have, let's say, Starry Night over here and a, a, an equivalent-sized Van Gogh painting of sunflowers, that's a pretty easy distinction. You just average the overall brightness, and you can say, okay, that's, a, that's an A and that's a B. That's a bright one and that's a dark one. If you had two sort of classic paintings by Mondrian, the kind where you have the lines and the color patches, You couldn't necessarily do that by averaging, by looking at the overall brightness or even the kinds of elements that are used. You have to look at the pattern. And that's what multivoxel pattern analysis and other multivariate methods are are about. And with any good thing, it's always possible to oversell it. But I think that there's really a lot to this stuff. So what's been done? Well, the, the original experiments were perceptual. Things usually start with perception. You can, can you tell whether someone is looking at a, a, a chair versus a wrench versus a face versus a place? And sure enough, you can look at these patterns without paying attention to what's generally going up or going down, but the microstructure of the pattern, you can tell what someone's looking at. And then people did it with, with, with imagining. You could tell whether someone's thinking of a face or, 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 or a place or an object by looking at these patterns, and in a way that you couldn't do it by doing overall subtractions of what's generally up or what's generally down. Um, more recently, uh, people have done things with, with, with concepts. So there's a really fascinating paper by Tom Mitchell and, 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 and colleagues where they uh, had a huge corpus of words uh, and they had a mapping of the semantic relationships among all of these words. So obviously dog and cat are gonna be closely related, dog and nuclear reactor, not so much. Um, and then they mapped pa- brain patterns onto a set of words and then they took those uh, and, and, and they took those words and looked at the... And, and, and they took sorry, a, new, a new word that was not ever looked at with the brain imaging before with the analysis and said, what should the brain pattern for this word look like? The example they use is celery and airplane. And you can make a pretty good guess about what the brain pattern when someone's thinking about celery or airplane looks like based on what the patterns look like for other words, other concepts, I should say, that are more similar versus less similar. Another recent sort of classic... Uh, you give people two numbers and you say, don't tell me, but just in your head plan on either adding the two or subtracting the two. This is John Dylan Haynes' work. And you can tell, that is not read the intention, but make a better-than-chance prediction seconds in advance whether or not someone is going to add the two or subtract the two. And recently people have started this Jack Gallant's work at, at, at Berkeley where uh, you can try to reconstruct still images and even videos from, from, from brain patterns. So finally getting at the content. Not just what kind of processor is engaged, how does that processor generally work, what kind of variables does it use, what, is it, what are its temporal dynamics, but the actual stuff that's being processed. Okay, so what's the significance of this? Well, the first thing that everybody thinks is, oh, so brain reading, people are going to be able to read your minds or read, read your brains. I think at this point, and for a long time, if you want to know people's secrets, go through their garbage. <laughs> Read their Facebook page. It's going to be a long time before the best way to get at somebody's secrets is going to be by, by, by looking at their brain scans. But what I think the, the long-term promise of this is really about is understanding the language of thought. And that's a term, that, the phrase was made famous by Jerry Fodor. He had a specific theory about this that comes with a lot of baggage. But the idea that there has to be some kind of language of thought in the brain I think actually makes a lot of sense. If I tell you something in English... And, you, and then someone later asks you a question in French, you can take the information that you learned in English and, 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 and give the answer in French. There has to at least be something that's translated in that. You might have seen it visually, but you can respond with words. Or you can point to a picture. You can access it from memory. You can use it to guide actions with any part of your body. There seems to be this global informational access where the same piece of information can be used by almost any kind of system. Uh, sensory system, motor system, memory system, system for evaluating outcomes, there's gotta be some general purpose format for representing the meanings of things. And what we've started with now are relatively small things, object-like things like an intention, a concept, a perception, a visual image. What we don't yet have is, first of all, a detailed understanding of the structure of these representations for these specific things. And we don't yet understand how these things get put together, how thoughts get put together in the same way that we know language gets put together from words. Uh, and I think that, I, I don't know if that's a few years off, if that's, if that's decades off. This is something that I've just started thinking about and working on. But I think that if neuroscience is really going to matter for the social sciences, if neuroscience is going to teach us things about whether or not the U.S. is likely to bomb Syria and why people some people think it's a good idea and some people think it's a bad idea and how our understanding of what happened in Libya or what happened in Iraq is informing our understanding of whether or not we will or should bomb Syria. We're going to have to really understand the language of the brain. We're going to have to really understand the content that is being processed and not just the kind of processing and the general operating characteristics of that, problem, of, of that processing. Now, uh, is... Multivoxel pattern analysis, multivariate methods of neuroimaging, is is it going to answer this question? I don't know. What I do think is this is our current best hope. This is our current best way forward for actually speaking the language of the brain and finally getting the mental microscope that I was hoping we would have by now uh, in the late 90s when I first started doing this. Thank
1: you. Josh, um, uh, the last point you made about uh, multi-voxel pattern analysis reminded me of one of the first points that was made today mm-hmm. um, about big data. Mm-hmm. And it looks to me as if you're anticipating a future, even with the rose-colored glasses on, where now, thanks to big data and mm-hmm. really good multi pattern analysis, we can, to some degree, read people's minds. But... We're not going to know why. We're not going to know what the system is. We're not We're not going to be able to, uh, as it were, do brain writing. We can do brain reading, but uh, doing brain writing will be, uh, uh, if we can do it at all, we won't know how or why it works, and we'll be completely dependent on the on the massive technology, not on any theory we've got about how representation is organized. So, so I agree with you that that's where we are now. And you may be right.
0: We may be stuck here for a long time and I may be as disappointed, uh, 15 years now about the hopes that I'm expressing now, as I am now about at least certain things that I hoped for when I first started doing this. But I think there are some real reasons to think that it's, 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 it's not a, it's not necessarily a, a, a false hope. Um, And a a really fascinating recent experiment, also by by Jim Haxby, uh, uses a method what's called hyperalignment, which is essentially trying to deal with, begins with a technical problem, but it really gets into much more interesting conceptual territory, which is, okay... So everybody's brains are representing all of these things, but surely what's representing these kinds of fine microcognitive details in me, it's not going to be exactly in the same place for me as it is for you. So how do you normalize people's brains? And what he did was he said, well, all right, I'm going to have people watch very complicated stimulus. I'll have people watching movies. And I'm going to look at, start with one person's set of brain data. And then I'm going to do a factor analysis. So I'm going to try and find out what are the major factors what is the underlying structure how do these things hang together into 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 more coherent representational categories and and that was really done sort of beginning i think as a as as just a technical matter how do we align these brains but what he found was that if you take uh one person's brain and you find their major components and you take another person's brain and find their major components the components seem to line up extremely well. And uh, and if you can translate sort of the specific topography of one person's brain into the topography of another person's brain or into a common topography using this higher order space. Now, that's one step forward. Now, if you're a pessimist, you say, well, factor uh are those going to correspond to some kind of interesting cognitive units? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. but." Uh, I, I think that these kind of experiments at least give me hope that we can not just, in a brute force kind of way, separate the A's from the B's, predict the A's from the B's, but actually find deeper structure that we can then start saying, okay, well, if you were to manipulate this component this way, then you would have a representation that looks more like this instead of a representation that looks more like that. In other words, when you look at it the level of components, it might start looking more like a language and less like a schmear of big data.
1: Smachter smear. <laughs> 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 we're calling your fuck factor schmachter.
2: Um so I'm an, every time I say what I'm about to say it sounds like I'm, I'm a pessimist of some sort about neuroscience, but I'm a real optimist about neuroscience. I just want to check to see whether we're talking about the same thing because you have you offer out this hope that we will learn deep things about psychology. And then it turns out that what we're learning is really, really interesting things about the brain. So for a neuroscientist, this is amazing. I mean, and, and in fact, it is a level up from just maybe regular neuroscience, because what you're essentially saying is we're connecting, we're, we're learning the assembly or the machine language of the brain. Right? And, but I'm still not sure what, what we know more about the psychology. And it's, it's one thing to say we know, we know how, how neurons encode concepts in, in this sense. But it, it still seems as if it's dangled out as a hope for a psychological theory that is not—it's not just elbow grease that we need to get to the psychological theory. Yeah. It's that even when we solve that problem, I think, as as Dan Dennett was saying, we're still there's still this huge open
0: question about the psychology. Right? So this is, I mean, it's, it's the mind-body problem, right? It's its, it's I, I don't know. Don't call it that. Okay, it well, not no, no, sorry, it's not the mind-body problem. Sorry, it's not the problem of consciousness, which is sometimes goes that. Let's be more specific. It is the problem of, of understanding in a transparent way the relationship between mental phenomena and the physical phenomena of the brain. Now, I, I freely admit that that gap has not been closed. And and I can't promise you, and so therefore I can't tell you when it when it's going to be even even a little bit. But let me try to do what I did with Dan, give you some sense of how this could go. So in the Mitchell experiment that I described, where they're picked, predicting brain patterns for things like pl- airplane and celery, that the the the, the 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 algorithm hasn't seen the data yet, and you can predict reasonably well. What's going on there is there are certain semantic features that say different vegetables have in common. And those semantic features seem to be represented uh, commonly among different kinds of vegetables or different kinds of artifacts or cards or, or, or kinds of things. And when it comes to concrete objects uh, like celery and, uh, and, and, and airplanes, we can make a pretty good guess about what the kinds of features are likely to be. So does it have leaves? Is it green? Does it move on its own? Does it make a roaring noise? And so on and so forth. But what happens when we start getting into abstract concepts? Now they—they they sort of to try to get a result. We're looking at concrete nouns. But what if you start looking at more abstract things? I mean, you can start all the way with things like justice or something like that. But you can sort of things things that are that are that are somewhat abstract and somewhat concrete, like the idea of a market. Well, a market can be a literal place where people exchange goods, but a market can be a more abstract kind of thing, right? And uh, just as you can identify the features that are relevant for classifying different kinds of more basic concepts where you're not gonna, probably not going to get any big surprises, um, you may be able to do the same kind of thing for, for, for more abstract things. And in a way where we don't have our, our percepts to guide us. So I can say, oh, well, plants kind of look similar. And, 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 and uh, vehicles kind of do the same sort of, sort of thing. But when it comes to understanding the relationships among abstract concepts, it's much harder to know where to start. And doing something like this kind of analysis can help. The other things that it's revealed is uh, that there's a huge, important distinction between animate and inanimate things, that this seems to be the biggest split in terms of where things are housed in the brain. And while that's not super surprising, it's, it, it seemed like a good candidate, you wouldn't necessarily know that that was true just from observing behavior, at least the literature that, that I've seen. Do, do, have people done, like, sneaky experiments, like show a, a celery-shaped car, for example, or, you know, I, I'm serious, like, uh, you know, trying to... You know, screw with the brain man. yeah I think I mean at this point I think it's just we're sort starting you know, the I'm, basic I, stuff right Try <laughs> to, to just you know step one foot in front of the other but I, as far as I know there haven't been sort of you know bent like a, concepts a dog shaped nuclear yeah, reactor right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you do see things like that in other domains. So there's an experiment, you know, there's this distinction between objects and places. And some, some clever person says, well, you've got a place like a house, you've got an object like this toy, well, what if it's a toy house, right? And can you see the kind of shifting back and forth from a more object-like representation to a more place-like representation, depending on how, how, it, how it's framed? So in the more perceptual end of things, you see stuff like that when it comes to more, well, so that, that's not too far off from your celery car. Um, but, you know, when it comes to more abstract things, I don't know. Um, Oh, John's John's in charge. I think we've got to keep moving. Thank you.